Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. Today I sat down with uh, an executive producer named Jim Kreitzer. His film Just Right came out in 1997, 20 years ago. And uh, it was his first film as an executive producer. Uh, it was a first-time director, a first-time screenwriter. And they attempted to make a film outside the Hollywood system. What's interesting about Just Right is it was Jeremy Piven's first uh, leading man, like leading role. And uh, it also starred Sherilyn Fenn from uh, Twin Peaks. Now, this film, with a few adjustments, could have easily been Notting Hill. You might have seen this film on TV. You might have seen this film, uh, you know, on a plane. You might have seen this film everywhere. It was very close, I think, to becoming like a very A-list kind of uh, breakout rom-com, the kind of biggest film of the year. A few things happened along the way, and uh, we talk about them in this interview. And uh, I think it's quite fascinating. I hope you'll enjoy it as well. If you want to see the film Just Right, apparently it's recently been added to Netflix. I'm not sure if that's Netflix Australia. The film is available uh, on DVD, though, in Australia. There is a Region 4 version available, and uh, you can find it on eBay for only a few dollars. So if you're interested in the film, uh, check it out. Without further ado, here's the interview with Jim. When I was a kid... I told my parents once that when I died, I didn't want to go to heaven or hell like everybody else. What I wanted was to go to Beverly Hills. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. Thank you very much for sitting down, taking the time. Uh, I'm looking forward to delving into your history and, uh, you know, the films that you've worked on as an executive producer and consultant. And uh, my wife and I just watched one of your films, Just Right, which uh, stars Jeremy Piven. And, you know, my wife likes a rom-com and we were wondering as we watched it, why we would never had never heard of it before, you know? For the podcast, often we find obscure films and we try and ensure they have somebody famous in them. And Jeremy Piven, obviously, has had a fantastic career in the last 20 years. You know, did you think to yourself that you were making something uh, when you made Just Right that would last the test of time? You know, because we can watch it today. It's got a core audience. People enjoy it. It has found fans. It has lasted the test of time. I'm, I make films that I, I make nice films. That seems what I you have to call that. Gary Marshall, who just passed away, had a quote that said I, he makes nice films. And, and I, I kind of gravitated towards that. So when we're one of the things that I've been always trying to do, David, is to try to market a film before you make it, which is kind of my mantra. In other words, I don't if someone was to pitch me a project which is a funny little film about some taboo subject. I had a guy one time mention to me he wanted to pitch a film about incest. And, and I said, I'm just not, it's such a narrow, who's, who finds that appealing? And maybe it's a dysfunctional family and maybe it's, it's, it's got some appeal to somebody. But to the mass market, if your measure of success is to make a film that is appealing to as many people as possible. You have to think mainstream, a rom-com. You don't always need to make the most vile and slasher film out there. Slasher films can be intriguing because they're appealing and they don't take a lot of money to make 
and you can actually measure your success by financially with just a slasher film. I mean, if it's a, I don't, I, I made one, which was a PG-13, which we kept very tame. But the reality is it, it, it was appealing to a broad market. And so when we made Just Right or we started going after the story for Just Right, we looked for a story or we tried to make a story that would be appealing to as many people as possible. And, and I continue to make those kind of films and be involved in those projects because I think you have a greater chance of success not only financially but also visually. And if a measure of a filmmaker's success is to be seen or to make a project that can lead to another project, then mainstream broad films will do that rather than the obscure short or documentary or a subject matter that is so narrowly seen that you have less of a chance for success. And so Just Right, David, was one of those films that I felt when we looked for the script, when we looked for the project, we wanted, we were thinking, how are we going to sell this? Who's going to, who's going to like this? Who's going to, who's going to get this joke? And so it was yeah. very important for us to find a project that was broad-based. Yeah. Have you always wanted to work on films, Jim? Um, I had a, I, I must have. I love the creative process. I love putting people together and matching their talents. Filmmaking is an amazingly intense creative collaborative process i've always had my 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 quality or my ability to to put people together with projects match a director with a script uh match a script with a writer match a subject matter with a writer and to pick projects out of the ones that are pitched to me that seem to be to sort of have the ability to to be seen and yes get your money back and and have a visually as it has an aesthetically successful run. I, I think I've been able to do that. So yes, I've always been interested in the creative process. I love hanging around with young people that are energetic and creative. And I love just learn, I can learn so much on a set from people and, and their journeys, these men and women that are on the set. I mean, they're like nomads. They, they, they go from one project to the next, to the next, because and they take their own specific creative process, whether it's a digital imaging, whether it's gaffing, whether it's electrical, whether it's, they just, they love that thing. And when they're doing their thing, that makes, get, gets me going. And then I just sometimes like the whole process because I feed off these people uh, that I've been fortunate to work with over the years. So tell us about uh, your initial projects. You know, what first got you into uh, executive producing, consulting, was it uh, fever-like, did you say? I have to admit that when I was about 25 years ago, my wife and I went. The, the story with how I initially got started was actually kind of interesting. I bought my wife a walk-on role to Cheers, you know, the TV show. And we, I live in Chicago, and we flew to California, and she got to be a walk-on sitting at the bar at Cheers. And at that, and I sat in the, the bleachers for three days and watch them rehearse and and through that we've met some interesting people who were in the business and one fella in particular who happened to be from Wisconsin which was where we were living at the time gravitated to my wife he got to meet me he was very energetic creative person who was basically trying to make it as an actor in Hollywood 
and did an okay job of it, but he was more of a behind-the-scene guy. He, would, he was like a sponge. He would absorb knowledge, pay attention when he was working as an extra or as a walk-on role, as a, um, not a walk-on role, but as a, um, you know, a bit player. And he said, I want to make a movie. And I've got these people that who can make it for you. And I was intrigued enough to where as an executive producer at that particular time, David, it was purely as an executive producer investor. I didn't know one end of a film camera from another. And so I invested in this film, Fever Lake, Corey Haim and Mario Lopez and made it up in Wisconsin with these people. And it was a very, it was probably, it was definitely less than a million U.S. dollars. I didn't know what an executive producer was from anything. I remember one, one day in particular, one night, they said they needed a canoe for the, for the lake scene. And I said, well, I know there's a canoe across the lake. And it was midnight. And I said, I'll go get this canoe. And so I'm paddling across the lake. It's a beautiful moon out in the summertime. As I'm paddling across from one end by myself across this lake in the middle of the night, I'm saying to myself, this must be what an executive producer does. <laughs> <laughs> so in the reality, it was, it was, and I learned that independent filmmaking, everybody pitches in and does their, their, do a little bit of everything. And I, like my friend who initially got me in this, I was a bit of a sponge with this. I learned how, learned what the, the various crew members were, what the various jobs were, what the description was, how to solve problems, how to get things finished, how to distribution you know, how to finish a project, how to go through editing and sitting in the labs, you know, how to, what ADR was all about, everything. So that when I moved on to my next project, which was just right, my title was an executive producer, but I was the producer. My partner, Heath McLaughlin, was the producer, but as the project wore on, I produced the project along with him. It was me and him against the world taking care of things. And so I so the, the title is executive producer. That, that's initially executive producers in feature films, more so in TV. But in feature films, executive producer can be the money guy or the money person. And I was a little of that in Fever Lake, more so, didn't know anything. In Just Right, I was at the end there. I was the guy. I wasn't the line producer, but I was on set every day. And I was getting things done and, and making decisions that were creative ones, working with the director. And so I, I by the time, if, if you look on my filmography, I'm probably more of an exec producer on several of my projects. But after, after Just Right, I, I was pretty much doing a lot of the production myself. So I pretty much know how to get it done if I have to. I'll, I'll hire a line producer to be the guy on the set every single day, worrying about is the location locked down, is is are, are the people on board, but you know, ultimately I know what they're doing on a daily basis, keeping track of the budget, keeping track of everything. And, and so if my title as executive producer may well be that, but ultimately I consider myself a producer at, at, at this stage of the game for, for all the films that I've done. Did your wife uh, enjoy her cameo in Cheers? Yeah, she was fun. It was she was in the second to the last show, you know, and um, it was a big deal back home here. She was on. She she only got her. I think they saw her forehead for about five seconds, which was nothing major. <laughs> but it was. It, but looking back on it, there were on good days when I've been involved in films. We look back and go, why? If it hadn't been for that little walk-on role to Cheers, where would, we would have never been able to do this. But then on bad days, when things were not going well, 
said, you know, I might have wished I'd never gone out to California for that walk-on role. So in, the, in the long scheme of things, our experiences in the 25 years I've done projects now, for the most part, have been really positive. I've met some really amazing people who've made me look good. Um, and, I, and I continue to enjoy filmmaking and finding my way and meeting and working with a lot of creative people. Well, Just Right, which obviously 20 years ago for you is basically a lifetime you know, in the film world, of course. To find the script for the film, you put an ad in the paper, is that right? We did. Um, my partner and I, when we discussed this, we had kind of an interesting financial arrangement that the first project I did turned out to be relatively financially successful. And so we were in a, in a unique situation with Just Right that we had the money before we had the project. So I headed the investor core of people who were local people, friends of mine, who put money into a kitty. And we then said, let's make a movie. Unlike where you most of the time, you know, you have a project and you start pitching it and you're hoping someone else is going to give you the money. So we had a unique situation where we had the money before we did the project. We knew what our budget was going to be, which was, I want to say now, probably less than $2 million back then. And we said, let's go find a script. And both my partner and I felt we were looking for a mainstream project, broad-based, PG, PG-13. And we went out into the marketplace with an ad in The Hollywood Reporter, and I think we was in Variety too. I can't remember else where we ran it. Back then, social media wasn't as active, so you didn't have to put it out online. I think it would have been overwhelming if we put it out online. My partner was in L.A., and I was here, and we put, out the, put it out, and we were inundated with hundreds of scripts. And please understand, back then, David, it was the hard copy script. It's not the online version that they'll just email it to you now, whereas you can just print it out yourself if you find it interesting. This were, these were stacks and stacks of of scripts of writers that had these projects and we worked through this and my partner had a reader and I had a reader that helped us go through things and we had certain parameters that we started with such as we were looking for something sort of non-solicitous didn't mind sex or violence or language but if it was just for the sake of those things we didn't like it if if there was language on the first page or the second page that we didn't enjoy. If this is the only word this guy can use or this woman can use, then you know the rest of the script isn't going to be any good. I, I did a film years later with Ernest Borgnine, God bless him, and he said to me one time, he says, you know, when he's pitched a project, and Ernest, that, as the years went by, I mean, he could swear like a truck driver, don't get me wrong, he was a wonderful man, but he didn't like stories that were, that had bad language in it. He just didn't. He, he was a sweet, sweet guy. And I, I, he gave me a lot of good advice that if you get through the first two or three pages and you don't like the language and all they can say is this word or that word, they just said, you know, then they're not being very good writers. They should be able, there's a million other words to use. Do they have to use this word six times on the first page? Yeah. And you know, he was right. And I laughed at it at the time. I said, I kind of chuckle out of it, but he was right. So when we found this, so we narrowed it down to a romantic comedy that we wanted. And then we narrowed it down to about five or six different stories. Then we began to work with the writer and we wanted to see if the writer was workable. And I use that word a lot, David, and you may have 
certainly know that a, a workable person is someone who's a little flexible. It's not so dogmatic in their approach to script writing. And I, if, if I get a writer who comes to me with a project and says, this story needs to be told, this is my baby, this, this, we need to get this out there, then I find that that person is usually a little inflexible when it comes to my saying, you know, this story is 140 pages long. Get rid of 60 of it and let's talk then. John Houston once said, he's, he tell the story about 95 pages and that's it. I think it was John, it might have been John Ford, said 95 pages and that's it. I don't care what's it, get rid of the 100, just pull out 10 pages. You know, so I, I, I always laughed at that. I can't remember who it was that said that, but I, I have the same thing. If I see a pay, if I see a script that's 110 pages long, I, I, I can't even get past that. I, it's like too long. It's just, it's not going to, it's not going to work for me. We, we, we narrowed it down to about five or six projects. And the writer, uh, Stan Williamson, was a very nice, workable guy. He listened to our comments and he talked about what he fought, what, how he got the story. And I think he would listen to the, to the criticism. And he was okay with that. And, and that's what made us go with Just Right because the writer was workable. We didn't just, we bought his script, we optioned the story, and he said, well, now let's see if we can make the movie. I said, no, 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 you misunderstand. We're making your movie. We have the money. He and the actors, when we cast these roles, you know, and the, and the casting agents, they couldn't believe it. What do you mean you got the money? Wait a minute, you're not just, Joe, we, I remember we did a casting session with Joe Beth Williams, and Joe Beth, I said, I said, okay, great, you got the part. She says, well, now you're going to attach my name and sell the project. I said, no, 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 no. You're starting on Thursday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. well, it was a wonderful environment to be in. When you have the money, you're, you're in a better position, you know, where you can negotiate them because actors and directors and crew members, you know, you say, well, you know, I'm going to, well, this is my normal rate, but if you know, I'm sitting around doing nothing right now, and if we can fit you in, then we'll pay you less money and we'll start you next week because we were in that position of where we were controlling the timing on the film. So finding Just Right was a real gem for us. I mean, this, the script, the director, and the actors are what really make a project as good, all three of those things. But if you got a bad director, you could have a good script that could make up for the director a little bit. And if you have bad actors, then maybe the director and the script can make up for the actor. But if you get all three of them, then you're able to make a really cute project and that, that you've got a good script and you've got a halfway decent director and a, some nice actors. I mean, and that to me was why Just Right did what it did because our director that we hired was a first time feature director, Andy Gallerani, who was a commercial director. And he had not done a feature before. We were concerned that he was visually beautiful. We knew he was going to be perfect on camera, and he threw himself into this project. He was great, he, but we had to watch the budget, but because he was a first-time director, that scared some of the actors because they didn't know what they were getting, and they didn't know who they were getting, and then act, and Andy was, was ingratiating, and he was lovely to work with. A fiery Italian, had a lot of great ideas, and would always be, but sometimes there were times when he would let the actors ad lib a little bit because it was funny. He was, he was great. He's still a good friend of mine and he would let the actors go 
And then we kept saying, you know, this is, you, you got to pull them in here, get a hold of these guys because Jeremy Piven is a fast talking hip guy and he can go on forever. He can ad lib all night long. And there were times when we finally had to say, well, okay, I, I'm tired of hearing Jeremy do his patter and let's, let's bring him back and get him on, on task here. Was, uh, was it always going to be Jeremy Piven and Sherilyn Fenn or was there any other options uh, for casting? Well, there were plenty, you know, uh, Jeremy, at the time he came to us, was a very hip. He was from Chicago. He still is. He's from mm-hmm. Chicago. He was on Ellen, and he was doing Cupid at the time. So he was very busy, very busy, and just he was he was from a theatrical family. His mom and dad were very talented people, and they ran the Piven Family Theater Workshop here in Chicago. So it's very well. John Cusack came out of that. And so they're a big, a fairly famous theatrical family and well-trained. And he nailed his audition. I mean, he was great. And, and there was no question that when he did his audition on tape, it, he was the guy. He was the guy. We wanted Jeremy immediately for this, for Harold. I don't recall, I believe if I'm not mistaken, that we had Sherilyn Fenn cast first you know uh, our casting directors always say that the first actor who we bring on is the most important because they attract others Sherilyn at the time was was a big name and she had just got off the Twin Peaks I think that's what the name of it was we had a choice about I'll never forget this at the time we had a choice about Sherilyn Fenn or an up-and-coming star by the name of Ashley Judd. Ashley Judd was actually quite charming, but she was not. She was the sister of Wyona and Naomi Judd, the singers, but she was trying to make a name in showbiz at the time. But we went with the big name, Sherilyn. Looking back in retrospect, David, looking for obscure films, you might have been calling me because Ashley Judd was in this film more so than Sherilyn Fenn. She stood the test of time, so to speak. Sherilyn's yeah. faded away, and and um, Ashley has become more of a star. Jeremy was Jeremy's star was on the up uptick. He liked the combination with Sherilyn Fenn. Once we got Sherilyn, she was the attraction of other people, of other actors. They wanted to work with Sherilyn. Alex Rocco came on, great actor, great person, wonderful guy. Just made the set that much more fun. Came on, Joe Beth Williams came on, Costas Mandelar came on. We, we, were, we were getting people that we didn't deserve, truly. When we kept, we kept turning around and people were coming on, we were just happening to catch people at the time. I, I, I learned as the years went by that you know, never never be afraid to ask for a, the biggest stars you can get because sometimes you might just get lucky that they're available, that they like a story, they're in between jobs, they're visiting um, relatives this for the month of July in Los Angeles, and they've got nothing to do, so they want to come make a couple, make some money, and work on a project. And that's I, I never let big names get in my way about asking them if they were interested in a project. We, we cast Ernest Borgnine in a film called Last Great Ride, which was a children's film in Wisconsin because he was coming out here into Wisconsin to be in the what they call the circus parade. He came to Milwaukee every year, every summer, 
right around the 4th of July, dressed up like a clown and walked up and down this long, big parade. And he loved it. And we knew he was coming in town. I got in touch with the governor of the state and the governor of the state was a friend of his and he contacted Mr. Borgnine. And sure enough, next thing we know is here we have an Academy Award winner going to be in our little children's film. It was one of those things, David, that you never, you shouldn't be afraid to pick up the phone to call somebody about a project. Jeremy, I didn't pick up the phone and call Jeremy. Our casting director had done all that. Many times you'd be surprised how big a name you can get if you just happen to be in the right place at the right time, you know? What's great about Just Right, obviously, is that it's a first-time director who was doing Taco Bell commercials, uh, a first-time production team, you know, making their first film in just 19 days. Right. And overall, it's an amazing achievement that it all came together for you, isn't it? We did get lucky. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there was... There was always bumps during the road, and you know, that was very stressful. Pre-production was stressful, and and there was there were people who were the first times in everything. I was I was I came on board as as an exec producer, and when it was all said and done, I was probably going toe to toe with my producer doing everything. So our learning scales were off the curve, but we had a, we had a good set. Our our director was amazing. He held it all together. And, you know, you got 19 days and you got a budget and you've got to make the day. You've got to keep your budget under control. You, you've got 30 actors you're in control of. You know, 16-hour days, you get up in four hours and you go to work again for another 16 days. And at the end of the – on the seventh day, you just were exhausted and you got up and did it again. So the weather was cooperative. It was, it was not a tough – you know, I can't remember how many locations we had, but it was in Los Angeles, and um, we didn't have to. I've got a list, actually, if you want me to read out what I've got. Oh, sure. It says locations included mansions in Malibu and Bel Air, a church in Koreatown, a carnival in Van Nuys, a house in Studio City, and a small stage at a Hollywood studio. Yeah. Um, so we were probably a half a dozen to a, to ten locations, but we had a we had a really good, please understand that as a producer who controls people on the set, you need a couple really good associate producers, co-producer, produ unit production managers. We had some really talented, really energetic people who really were way, went way and beyond what, and it, and it made us look good. So I'd like to think, as I said to you before, David, that you know, I'm able to match people with jobs and can find, as the years go by, you find the right people that you'd like to go back to again. Can, can, are you interested in another project? Can, are you available? And if you're not available, do you know somebody, uh, another DP that's available? I, wanna, I, I want somebody like you. Um, and then on, those, on the other hand, when you find people that maybe you're a little less enchanted with, you just move on and, and um, make another project without them. So I'm not saying that productions are all pleasant because they're not. They're very hard. And whenever I see a film that someone has gotten finished, no matter if I hate it, I always make a point to go and ask that filmmaker and tell that filmmaker, good job on getting this done because it's so hard uh, to make a film. And then to make a film that's good, well, that's really good. That's really a bonus. But just to get a film done is hard enough. And you have to have one or two people that champion the film, get behind it, have a certain level of workability. They're all flexible. They all, it's collaborative. Nobody takes 
a dogmatic centric position. They all work with each other. And, and that's why people like me, who are sort of the head of the production company, I'd like to think would say, well, what are you interested in doing? And if, if I tell them how to do their job, that's not really my job to do that. I tell them you got to show up here at a certain time. I'm hiring you to do this. And once I figure out that you're going to do your job, I'm going to leave you alone because that's their specialty. They don't need somebody like me telling them all the time that, hey, you know, why don't you frame this shot a little differently? Well, they don't want to hear that from me. You know, let's edit. I'm not an, I, I'm not an editor. I know what I like. I have to be I have to be just as workable as the people that I hire. I was just going to say uh, it's you know it's a good talent to have to um, notice people's specialities and you know set them up and let them go. Uh, you're going to get everybody's best creative juices flowing, aren't you? You do. There's there's you know creative people sometimes are not the most practical people either. You know sometimes they'll just overspend or spend times on obscure singular things where they kind of miss the big picture. And that's where people like me come in and go, you know, John, I think you may want to focus your attention on this here and don't worry about the color of this kid's hair or something like that. You know, just get the product, get it done. So producer should measure his ability or his or her ability by finding the right project, finding the right people, getting it done on time and on budget. And then at the end of your day, if their measure, if the everybody has a different measure of success, my measure of success is routinely to make a project on time, on budget, and then to get the money back from the money that you put into the project and to distribute it, market it properly. Other people's success could be measured by, well, I want to get my name on this, I want my screen credit, and then I want to get another job from this. I may not make money on the first job, but I'm going to make more money on the second job. So that may, could be their measure of success, just to, to survive to see another day. You find, for the most part, people that are focused, but yet can see the big picture of saying, this is independent filmmaking. This is not a studio film. We don't have an unlimited budget. We can't go an extra day. We can't wait for you. You have to be here on time. You have to, you have to be there when we say you're going to be here because we cannot... We have no room for problems, which we do a little, but, you know, you understand. Did you um, have any issues with, uh, you know, was there anything you couldn't shoot on Just Right or anything that had to be changed on the fly in those 19 days? Yeah, I'm sure. It's been 20 years now, David, but, you know, there, there always were projects that the weather would turn sour. It got a little too cold. I remember at, at the mansion scene, we, you know, when we rented a house in Malibu, we couldn't get in there till you know, a, an hour or two later than we thought we were going to get in there. So we had to rush everything. It was always, you know, hurry, hurry, hurry. Uh, we had a big party scene, but we had a, we, we were blessed with a lot of help from product placement where we had a lot of cars, set cars that were available to us, uh, our location people, uh, because we were in Los Angeles, you know, everything, all the facilities and all the services are right there. Everybody's always trying to cut a deal. You understand when you're trying to get to a, an actor or, or a location. You know, people in Los Angeles are, I remember one day on it, we were filming at a restaurant on Mall, I can't remember where we were, a, a Sepul on Sepulveda in Los Angeles, which is a busy road. And there was this restaurant that we were on. They were rehearsing. And then when they would do a take, 
the director would say, all right, action, and the assistant associate producers or the PAs out would stop traffic on the street so they could do this take and this car would pull up and people would get out and then they would walk into the restaurant. Well, you know, the people in Los Angeles are very jaded by filmmaking. And so as soon as they block traffic, somebody would wait until things started going and then they would lay on their horn, I remember, and just make this incredible noise and ruin the shot. And people were just being that way just because they could, you know. So, you know, sure, there's always issues when you're filming in an urban environment. You know, there's a lot more congestion and traffic issues and more permits are required in different places. Filming in uh, different places in Wisconsin or in Michigan, like we've done, you know, permits are easier. People are much more cooperative. Uh, my last project was in Scotland and the people over there just fall over themselves to help you and so, I, you know, there's a certain cynicism in Hollywood where, you know, you don't get as many cooperation, but you have a huge talent pool and you have a huge number of people to draw from. But people on the outside of the business kind of look at it as kind of like they're going to charge you X amount of dollars to use their house. If you were someplace else, they would charge you 10 percent of that value to use your house. So you always good producers, especially now, David, good producers look for places where you can easily film, take advantage of the tax credits, because there are significant tax credits, grants, budgetary considerations. But in Los Angeles, when we did Just Right, there were always issues, and it mostly had to do with cost, the urban environment, trying to get things set up, block off streets. There wasn't anything in particular, but it was it was very rushed. 19 days was an amazing amount that you could get done. And I could attribute that to the people that worked on the set, there wasn't any issues with any of the actors that not about missing a day, staying in their trailer. Everybody was very cooperative. And that came from the top. That came from our, our lead actors who were very professional. Jeremy Piven never missed a day, was always on spot, always on task. When the lead actor, he, they generally, he or she sets the tone for the set. Everybody else feeds off of them. And if the lead actor is having a bad day or they're constantly difficult to work with, everybody else gets upset. And then the next thing you know is, is that you're fighting many forest fires off because of one person. I mean, nothing specific that stands out, David, that was so incredibly difficult, but because it was, it was a well, it, it was a, for the most part, it was a happy set. I think we, we, did well and um you got a cameo as well in just right you got to be johnny rocket's delivery boy yeah that was me i i didn't know any better at the time i i always took this alfred hitchcock routine where i would you know wanted to be in one of my films I, i've done enough now where i don't do it any longer um i got it out of my system back then they were filming on film not on digital like they are now so whenever you would roll camera it would cost you money the film would be chewing up and so i was always very concerned about don't waste any shots don't make too many takes you got it let's get out of here so i got all dressed up in this pizza guy's outfit and i went to the door and knocked on the door and alex rocco who was at home opened the door and alex was a charming wonderful guy good friend and he became a good friend we kept in touch as the years went by and i would knock on the door I mean, I was, I, all I had is, I didn't have to say anything. I just handed him the pizza. Alex would open the door and he says, you are the oldest pizza, and that wasn't his line. You're the oldest pizza guy I've ever seen. And so everybody laughed. And Andy, the director, would yell, cut. 
And I go, this is chewing up film here. Come on, guys, let's get this done. This is costing us money. And so they shut the door. I came up and Alex would say, you know, you really are an old guy for a pizza guy. You really are old and you're kind of ugly. And, you know, everybody would laugh again. And, and by this time, it was like the third or fourth take. And I kept thinking that all they're doing is just chewing up this film. Well, it turned out later that they weren't even running the camera. You know, they, they, they were just having having a go with me and they were watching me melt down as i was saying oh will you please take this thing come on and fine so they were just having fun but like i said before i i think david that as you may talk to other filmmakers the head producer the head actor the director it all trickles down and if the if the people are basically if they treat you with a level of respect if they give you your lead so to speak they let you do your thing up to a point i have to tell you i think it comes back to you in spades where these people work a little harder for you because they like you and they think you like them and it trickles down from the top that the set is a good set and independent filmmaking you cannot afford to be to have a difficult actor or director or a producer on the top of the rung it's as simple as that. That's why I was saying that other projects come down the road to me. I, the first thing I want to know is, you know, I, I don't want any attachments because I want to be the guy to pick those direct, the, the man or the woman as a director, the man or, the man or woman as a producer, a line producer. I, I want to be the guy to, to pick those people because I know I can pick the right people. And this work ethic that uh, Jeremy Piven had, you know, when he worked with you has obviously served him well. Have you kept track of his career since, you know? You know, this was Jeremy's first leading role in a film is he was the lead male he does he doesn't talk too much about just right as a project that he i i don't think he i haven't talked i ran across jeremy at a a couple years ago uh at a festival and stopped and said hello he's an edgier actor he he likes darker edgier films this was a light fluffy thing he didn't you know if i asked you if i ran across him now or you ran across him now and you asked him about Just Right, I can almost guarantee you that he would probably say, oh, yeah, that, not, oh, yeah, that, because he liked edgier projects that, uh, that made him, but challenged him more. This was a, we kept it light and fluffy, and that's not Jeremy's. Jeremy's a brilliant actor, and he wants to be challenged, and I don't think Just Right challenged him as much as he thought it would. Because oh he did great at it for us, but in terms of Jeremy Piven feeling how Just Right did for his career, I think he figured it was just I think he thought it was probably just a job, uh, not something he wants to put on his filmography at the top of the list. You know I think he did um, he did a film right after that with John Cusack. Serendipity. No, nah, there was something else too. It was another one. Maybe it wasn't John Cusack, but he's done some other stuff that's that's much more challenging. Are, uh, 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 theatrically wise, Selfridge certainly, uh, but but it's a challenge. He's he's a brilliant actor. Uh, although if you watch all of his roles uh, through the years, you can he's he's got that little inflection in his voice all the time. It's the same little. He falls back on it. It's a humorous. I can't do it. I I used to be able to imitate Jeremy a little bit better than I do now. He would always be this little banter. He would always he would always talk very quickly. In my in our role in our project, 
for what we wanted him to do for the days that we had him, we were glad to have him. And he never let me down once in terms of being on time, letting the crew know that he was there to, to work, not to mess around. Um, and that's and so I, I have good, nothing but good things to say about Jeremy over the years. Must have been uh, Gross Point Blank, the um, Hitman movie. That's what it was. I was drawing a blank there. I knew there was the word blank in there somewhere, and I'm, I'm glad you're there. <laughs> the, the film, Just Right, obviously has elements of like Notting Hill, you know, where an average guy winds up next to one of the hottest actresses in the world. And very easily, you know, Hugh Grant obviously would field questions about Notting Hill all the time, you know, as an iconic role. This very easily could have been the same for Jeremy Piven. It could have. It could have. I mean, I, it's a lot of, in our world, when we marketed the film, we were a bit naive in distribution. And it took us, this was my second film, you understand. If you have good distribution or if you can control your distribution, we could have done much better. I'm not going to name the studio that made us an offer for Just Right because it didn't happen. But we had a conference call with one of the acquisitions people from this particular studio. And it was I, our attorney, my partner, and the person from this studio. Our attorney said, listen, you guys, you guys have no idea how lucky you are to have this guy on the line. (laughs) Okay, you know, we figured, what did we know? We went through this and the guy said to us, all right, guys, I love your film. This is going to be great. We're going to bring it out on big video release. We're going to do a, you know, it's going to be a big splash in it. It's going to be a big Big hit for us. We're really excited. And we started kind of nickel and diming him a little bit. You know what that expression is where you kind of say, well, you know, can you do it this way? Can you do it that way? What do you think about this? And my attorney said, hold on a minute, put this guy on hold and said, Jim, you better watch it. Because if you come up with too many things, this guy's going to just shut you right off. Take the deal. Be happy you got it. Well, I didn't listen. It was pretty soon. And all of a sudden the line went dead. The guy goes, Jim, he's gone. That's it. So in retrospect, Just Right is remains a little bit more of an obscure film, probably because we didn't market it as good as we should have. We were a big success on the airlines. We got mo- more money back on airlines than our theatrical because it was one of those films back in the day when airlines would show one or two films, you know, unlike now where they have a a plethora of of films, you would watch it on the screen in front of you as everybody watched the same movie. And this is part of the other reason why we we knew we had a chance at Airlines, because we made a nice film that everybody could watch. Their kids would watch it. You know, they didn't have to worry about shutting their... You can't watch this. There's terms of their seven-year-olds that don't watch this. So it was very nice. So from a marketing standpoint, we did well foreign. We did well on the Airlines. Uh, we did had a halfway decent video release. We wanted to go theatrically. Some filmmakers feel that the measure of their success is that you have a theatrical release. Because if you were called straight to video, that would be like not a good thing. Well, reality is, is that there's a lot of really good films that went straight to video with a lot of good names in them, but never deserved a theatrical release. Well, theatrical releases cost a huge amount of money, P&A and, you know, advertising and amazing amount of work, just so you as a filmmaker can go, this is my badge of honor. I 
made it to the theaters. Well, you lost a fortune going to the theaters. And is that good or bad? And obviously in my world, I should have, I, I probably should have been happy enough to go straight to video and have a nice TV run. And Just Right still continues to play over the years. And we do still get, do still see it from time to time. I think it's just went on Netflix. And so, I mean, Just Right continues to play. And, and it, it, still, it still has interest. Obviously, people like you see it. I get a lot of people who email me and say, where has this film been? How come it's not out here? How come I haven't seen this film? How come Jeremy Piven fans see it? Um, there's not too many Sherilyn Finn fans that follow her any longer, but Jeremy certainly. You know, we kind of, when we cast Jeremy, we all felt that his star was rising. We all felt that he would be the guy that in the years to come, it would be a, that he would be the guy to make this film something that people could talk about in 20 years. I, I, don't, I don't think that, that any of the other actors that were there, they were all established actors by the time we got them. There was, and so Jeremy was one of, that, one of those guys kind of up and coming. He was kind of a hot guy at the time. Um, but everybody else was fairly well established. Uh, Alex Rocco, Casas Mandelar. I'm trying Wallace to... Sean? Uh, Wallace Sean? Uh, Wallace Sean. He was established. And, and you get them for a couple days. And it's, again, it's the same thing. You get these guys for a small amount of money. I mean, we were paying these guys like chicken sandwiches for, the, to, for a two days worth of work. You go, what do you mean you got Wallace Sean? Well, he's, he's in town. He's got nothing to do on Thursday and Friday. So why doesn't he just come out and do our film? And, that's, and we, our casting director was a wonderful guy. And I can't remember the name of him, but he was, uh, you probably have it on your list there. He, yes, he was, he was a wonderful guy. He, he knew everybody. And he said, we can get this guy, this guy, and this guy, and this woman. And so he, was, he did a really good job. Bruce Newberg? Yes, Bruce Newberg. And we were thrilled to death. Every time we turned around, Bruce had another big name for us. So you got this little obscure independent film, less than $2 million, 19 days. And when you look at the cast list, you kind of go, well, how did you get all these people? Well, we just got lucky. And we had our money in advance. And that was the key. As I said before, people, they read for the role not because we were going to use their name to sell the film. We already had the money in the bank, and we knew what we had to send. And that's why they, they came and said, okay, fine. I've got nothing to do next week. I'm here for you. And we were available for them. So that's why in other projects that I do, you know, you try to have the money before you start. It's always better that way, if you can, rather than try to raise money based on somebody's name, which is, another, which is how most films are actually. Most independents are actually done. It was a great project. I loved it. I was very, I'm very proud of it. I, I still, and I'm flattered that you would take the time out of here and pay attention to it because it really was, uh, when it was all said and done, we uh, were very proud of it. We entered it into uh, multiple film festivals and we won every single film festival for Audience Award that we were in. I think Santa Barbara, Temecula, Santa Clarita. Everywhere we turned around, people loved our film. And it was just, they loved it. Because it was sweet and simple. It didn't preach. And it was like the every guy, every day, little guy meets the big star. And Notting Hill came out after our film did. And of course, those of us, you know, who watched the whole premise realized that Julia Robertson, Hugh Grant could have made our film a lot bigger than it was too. <laughs> but, sure. but the premise was the same. Well, I read an article in the LA Times uh, with your partner Heath. He mentioned, you know, all the... Uh, scripts you guys got sent, you know, they all had murders, they were all sexual thrillers, psycho thrillers, 
Does that say something about the films being made at the time? You know, were you surrounded by all these psychosexual thrillers and you guys were a breath of fresh air, I guess? I, I think so. We, we, I, we came, Heath was from the Wisconsin like I was. You know, we had that Midwest ethics. You know, we didn't want to make slasher films and we just didn't. And I, I, after that, I made two children's films, three children's films right in a row. And I didn't want to turn into Walt Disney. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you have to have some drama, some entertainment to the films. But the projects that attracted to me were those that I could, I didn't have to send my kids to bed so I could watch the film later. And that's what I was saying before, that when we got these scripts sent to us, David, our readers and ourselves, we eliminated a lot of those films right away. Rattle scripts right away. We just had nothing to do with them because we didn't. That's not what we wanted to make. We were looking for a sweet film, and and I was in control of the money back here. And all these investors were all Midwestern people, and they didn't want anything to do with psychosexual things either. And that was that was the contingency that they got in at as investors. They said, "We don't know what the project is, but." It sure as heck better be nice. It was not just them. It was me too. Don't get me wrong. So over the years, you know, you've, have you had any kind of temptation to expand your role? Have you thought about directing or writing a script yourself? Well, I have written a couple scripts. I have one in particular that I was saying that, you know, it, it can be adaptable to Ireland or Scotland or Australia. It's set in a fishing village. I, I, so I wrote, I have one script that I wrote. Directing, um, I've always... I've second-guessed every one of my directors, but never enough to the point where I'd want to do it myself. I see what those directors give of themselves. I mean, have you ever directed anything on your own, done anything? Oh, nothing worth mentioning, really. I, uh, I've done some independent stuff, but it's, uh, I would hardly call myself a filmmaker. <laughs> okay, but let's, let's just say hypothetically then, of the hardest-working people on the sets, the ones that give everything of themselves are the directors, everything. My director in Just Right, Andy, told me one time, so I asked him what he did on his day off, and he said he, he went down to the beach in California, and he was, had worked six days straight, 20 hours a day, and he went and he took, and he, he sat down on the beach in a beach chair, fell completely asleep for 12 hours, woke up, sunburned to beat the band, drool was coming out of the corner of his mouth, he was so tired, and he said, I, I think my dead father came to visit me, but I'm not sure. So he was telling me just basically by saying that, that he was so exhausted. And, and I see what these directors have to go through where they throw themselves into these projects. And so whenever I make a picture, I'd like to say, okay, my name's on the project. I was the exec or I was the producer, but this is an Andy Gallerani film. This is a somebody else film. That's their film. I'm the guy that's marketing it, maybe put the nuts and bolts together. But the creative process there ultimately is usually the director. So do I want to be a director? Not in your life. I don't have enough uh, hours of the day to be a director. It, it takes an incredible amount of work. And so I respect them a great deal. They make a good director, a good crew, good actors, they make me look good. I mean, and and that's all I have to say. I'm one guy in who's done these films, but there are hundreds of people that are so energetic who work much harder than me. Basically, many of the creative process, much of the creative process is 
from them. Well, let's talk about uh, Tommy's Honor, uh, your current project that I think is coming out next year. Is that correct? I hadn't done a film, David, for probably uh, a, a film on my own where I produced it. Uh, like I said, I've done a lot of consulting. I did some distribution. I worked with some people, acquired some films, kept my feet wet in many aspects of filmmaking, distribution, financing, development, consultation, screenwriting a little bit. And so I kept my feet wet uh, throughout this whole process. And about five years, four years ago now, I was over in Scotland with a, an ill friend playing golf at St. Andrews on his bucket list trip. And I bought this book called Tommy's Honor, which is a true story about the, some of the founding fathers and son of golf in the 1870s. It's a true story, and it's a drama. It's, not, it's a golf movie, but it's a drama. Life, death, tragedies, period piece set in Scotland. And I had wondered why no one had made this film. So I, I did what I just said a minute ago. I, I brought the people together. I, I, I was an American making a, a movie in Scotland about an iconic true legend in Scotland. And I needed somebody to make me look good. So I contacted Jason Connery, Sean's son, who happens to also be Australian, by the way. I didn't know if you knew that or not. But he is, yes. His mother, um, Diane Cilentro, was um, uh, his mom, who was married to Sean Connery. She's passed on now. But she was Australian. And David, uh, uh, Jason has dual citizenship, Australia as well as the UK. And he was as Scottish as you could get. And so he was my director. He came on board. And it was just him and I for about a year or so. And then we began to acquire a line producer. And we came on board with a financier, a venture capitalist guy named Keith Bank. Then the project just took off from there. And then we acquired actors and we tried to keep it Scottish. It was a true story about a legendary Scottish family that as a golfer, they're very famous across the world. They were the original people that he was the original designer of St. Andrews. And he, the, the story is an amazing story of this father and the son and class distinction life, tragedy, death, beautiful story, but uplifting, which is exactly what I wanted. Being a golfer, I was attracted to the story anyway, but we needed to keep it centric. As I said before, Jason Connery came on board as our director. We filmed it in the summer of last year. Uh, it's coming out into the theaters in the, in the U.S. in April 14th of this year. It's coming out into Australia, into the theaters through a company called Transmission in the theaters in Australia in next year as well. The UK's is coming out in June. We were selected out of all the films to open the Edinburgh Film Festival in front of about 1,500 people last um, June, uh, which is an amazing event. And then we were fortunate enough to win the, to be nominated for Best Picture in Scotland for the Scottish Baptists uh, in November. And we were fortunate enough to be named Best Picture for last year. It, it, it is um, a project that I started from the very beginning. It was me and, and, I, and I'm quite proud of that. I have another series. I have a TV series that I'm starting in Scotland next uh, spring. And I have a couple other projects that I'm working on, features. Um, so I'm kind of getting back into it because the success of Tommy has been rewarding for me. Uh, and, I, and I'm not talking about financially, I'm just talking about aesthetically. And creatively, I, I found that I enjoyed the project 
I think is going to be a big success for us. Uh, we're going to get a lot of a lot of great press from it next year in the U.S. And as you know, one successful project leads to others. So I, I took a break for a while, and I um, I find that I still enjoy the process. I love working with creative people, um, and I'm still good at being able to match people with projects. I have some really beautiful stories. As I was saying before, David, going to Australia, and, and ma- I'd love to come down there. And I have this one project that I'm working on with Screwed Australia. I have a lot of spaghetti strands that I'm throwing on the wall. Some of them might stick, some of them might not. But Tommy, Tommy was it was a a nice project to uh, to make, and it was a great set. Again, I mean, I, I've been very fortunate with. We took a little longer with Tommy. Tommy took 38 days, I think, uh, in 13 different locations around Scotland. And unlike Los Angeles, where we brought, filmed some projects, the weather was very inconsistent. Unlike Los Angeles, if you stick around in Los Angeles, it's the weather remains the same. In Scotland, it changes moment to moment. And so the light changes, and it was a bigger, a much bigger challenge. If you can make an international picture, and nowadays, as I said to you before, David, it's really important because certain countries, the Scotland's one of them, the UK, Australia, Canada, are all very much aggressively trying to have you come to make films with them. They want you down there. They they will help you any way they can. Unlike the United States. There is a national a national film board in Australia, Scotland, uh, a quasi government agencies that are really helpful to to bring filmmakers down, regardless of whether they're American or not. They want to bring money down to your to their country, and and that's why a good filmmaker pays attention to that. Say yes, I'd like to make a movie in Chicago, but I can probably make it for a lot less if I if I double or cheat downtown someplace else that has a better tax credit i mean thor 3 just shot in uh, in brisbane here so that's right it's very popular and it's 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 and as i said to you before but it's a big commitment for a single filmmaker like myself who puts 20 30 40 50 people together and make a project and then but you have to really jump into it you say this is my project this is next year's project and that's what i'm going to do you try to do two or three of them at the same time yeah, that becomes a little t- challenging. My TV series is set in Scotland, and and that starts in April, and that's my one project for next year. And then the year after that, we'll see some what else happens. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I've really appreciated you chatting. Having a producer in front of me, I thought it might be fun to finish with a little game where I can do elevator pitches to you, and uh, based on the intellectual property and whether or not you're interested, tell me if you would assist in financing sure. or what role you would. Uh, have, or if you would want nothing to do with this uh, potential as a film. All right, first one, a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids remake. Uh, basically, a whole new family move into the old house and they find all the shrinking equipment up in the attic. I like it. I Yeah, I like it. That's because my whole psyche is about nice projects that give people's attention. Broad-based appeal. Love the idea. Sure. How about uh, a Home Alone reboot where Kevin McAllister is the dad now? And uh, Macaulay Culkin would have to be attached. He's trapped in the house with the kids and uh, basically shows shows them some of his old tricks when the crooks try and break in. Interesting, except I have a feeling that seeing pictures of Macaulay Culkin makes me scared to work with him. You know, it was a great idea. Love the concept. But I have a feeling that you're just asking for trouble. 
he might not get himself attached. Huh? Uh, well, I think you, you, uh, I, I don't know him, of course, but the reality is, is that it would scare me from a, a producer standpoint. If you have a job to get this done and you're bringing pro- people that are almost doing you the favor, then you kind of go, you know, I've got other things I could rather be doing. How about uh, grandfather of the bride, Steve Martin's daughter, Annie, and his son-in-law, Brian, they had a daughter between films, and uh, she's now getting married, perhaps at the young age of 18, and Steve Martin is now grandfather of the bride. I've strived to make movies that people don't know whether they laugh or cry. I love that idea. Father of the bride, or grandfather of the bride, I would, I would imagine there would be a half a dozen moments in that project that would make me think that. Great. Well, 100% success rate so oh, far. Right, right. Well, maybe. Uh, the Macaulay Cock and things a little shaky, but I would go along. How about uh, Ferris Bueller sequel where his kids are trying to wag school, but Ferris is more wise to, you know, this than the kids know? I think that's a tough act to follow. I, I think yeah. that would be too hip and too cute. And, you know, it's a tough act. Ferris Bueller was one of those. John Hughes is buried two miles away from me right now. I live in the town that he uh, filmed Home Alone in and all these films uh, set 16 candles uh, he did uh, breakfast club breakfast club that's I come out 10 miles from here so it, it, John Ferris Bueller was one of those films that would be somewhat iconic and a, a tough act to follow I, I don't think no matter how good you do it I think it would be really tough to do not to mention I also think that John Hughes would be a t- tough act to follow as well I'm not even sure if they'd let you have the rights to the film all right ready Oliver Stone's Trump. You certainly get people. You certainly get people to go to the theater for a lot of reasons. And if you're trying to become no, uh, get some notoriety, I think that would be. Ask me that in about six months. Okay. I think it's a little <laughs> too soon to say that. Yeah, I think they're really. You have to understand. I when I was in Scotland for the I was in Scotland for the election when we were there for the Baptist and I was working on the TV series. It was a remarkable experience to be overseas and knowing that most Scottish people knew more about our election than most of the people who did here. And I'm sure Australia is the same way. So it's a very hot topic over there. And over here, it is still continues to be a hot topic. So I have a feeling by the, if you made any, any film right now, it would have, it would be too uh, controversial. And I think you'd have to you got to let it settle down. You got to let it play out first before you can make a film because people right now, either you're going to, you'd think it was just be so completely solicitous and all you're doing is money grubbing. On the other hand, if you got to make it entertaining. So I think I would probably pass on that for now, but I would hold it not back in my mind and saying, well, maybe. All right. Last one. Uh, choose your own adventure. The movie where basically every 20 minutes in the film, you're given a choice and uh, it would have to either play on multiple screens or multiple TV channels or uh, online. And you have to go with various, you know, story points and therefore get alternate films, alternate endings. You could have different filmmakers doing each one. Choose your own adventure of the movie. You know, the age of interaction is upon us. And for a filmmaker to ignore anything like that would be foolish. I know enough to know there's very few films that are original any longer. They're all variations on a theme, as you know. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl again. You know, family has dysfunctional holiday. That's all the same thing. It's just, I think anybody under the age of 30, which
which I'm not, has some really energetic and creative ideas, much like you just mentioned. And any filmmaker who has the ability to put the nuts and bolts together to make a film would be foolish to not listen to those people under the age of 30. I don't get it, but that doesn't mean I won't listen because it is kind of intriguing. And if I could be, if, if a filmmaker could explain storyboards to me and show me just exactly what that means, I might find it all intriguing. But I would probably have to turn back to a younger filmmaker or a younger director or someone who could get that point across to me to, to ignore it and to say absolutely not because I want to make the traditional way of filmmaking any longer. Forget that. You know, the, the, the media has changed, but the stories are still the same. So if, if you're trying to create an adventure, I mean, you can create a cowboy movie with Gary Cooper and that was an adventure. That doesn't mean to say that it's not the same story. It's just that the media that it's presented in and the manner it's presented in and to the age of people it's presented in, age of the people that it's presented to, I should say, that, that's unique. And it's, it, you know, I'd, I'd love for both you and I to be around in 100 years from now to see what filmmaking has become and to see how it's presented. And we may be anyway. You know, it may just be in a different form, different people. There is, if, if people who made films 100 years ago would come back and see it now and say, holy smokes, look at all this. Look at all the CGIs and the amazing filmmaking. In 100 years from now, it's going to be completely different. So to say no to that, even though I don't understand it, it sounds interesting. I'd have to say, sure, show me what it is. Well, this has been really fascinating, Jim. Thanks very much for taking the time. Obviously, I hope our listeners have also enjoyed it. We can look out for Just Right on Netflix, as you say. I'm not sure whether or not Australia will have it. I'm not sure. And uh, It'll be around. Tommy's Honor, too. Good. Tommy's Honor, correct, um, which stars Peter Mullen, Jack Loudon, Ophelia Loverbond, and Sam Neill. Right. So uh, we can look out for that in 2017 as well. Yes, you can. Very good. Thanks very much for taking the time. And, okay. um, Welcome, David. I'm glad to take thanks for you for taking the time from over there. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Well, that was Jim Kreitzer discussing his film Just Right, which is 20 years old this year, came out in 1997. Uh, here at Podme, if you can, we're hoping to bring you many more interviews throughout 2017. Uh, this was the first, obviously. Uh, I'm hoping to have at least one a month for you, so uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can find all our back catalogue of films uh, from the last few years at www.podmeifyoucan.com. And, of course, you can find all our obscure films with uh, famous actors you know at our YouTube channel, which you can find the link at uh, podmeifyoucan.com. It's uh, youtube.com slash podmeifyoucan. As always, you can suggest a film for us on Facebook, and uh, I think this year, 2017, is going to be a lot better than 2016 in terms of the quality of films we'll have to enjoy. So um, jump onto Facebook, let us know what you think of this interview, and uh, if you can get your hands on it, check out the film Just Right and uh, the film Tommy's Honor when it comes out later in the year. Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod Me If You Can. Movie Reviews. 